Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Today, we will be talking to the font of all employment law wisdom, Kelly Thompson, about furlough and its associated fraud risk. Kelly is a partner at RPC in the employment team. She has experience working with clients on complex national and international employment matters and hands-on employment project experience. Kelly eats, sleeps and breathes significant organisational change programmes, including large-scale complex restructuring and now, of course, furlough. Kelly, welcome to Taxing Matters. Thank you, Alice. I can't think of anywhere better to be on a 30 degree day than recording a podcast. And I'm actually not being sarcastic. (laughs) And just for our listeners out there, we are both, in fact, recording this from under a blanket to make sure that the sound quality is perfect for you guys or as good as we can make it. So, just to clarify, sorry to cut across you, Alice, but they're two separate blankets. We are observing all social distancing rules during the recording (laughs) of this podcast. (laughs) That is completely accurate, of course. And a very important qualification for a law firm to be making. So, Kelly, furlough, what is it? That's such a good question. If you in February, possibly even the start of March, I would have been Googling it and telling you that it was related to prisoners being allowed to leave from prison or people in the army being allowed to leave from their duties. But it's taken on um, a completely different meaning during, during this lockdown period. So what we're talking about when we talk about furlough is one of the various measures that the UK government introduced to support businesses during this pandemic um, to enable them to keep on perhaps as as many stuff as they could for as long a period as was economically viable. And so it's essentially a, a kind of short name for what's actually called the coronavirus job retention scheme. And it's about government funding on a grant basis to support employers in uh, keeping their staff on but at home uh, whilst on the books. So how exactly does this scheme work? Who does it apply to? So the way it's worked since March has been quite different to how it will work from July onwards. So, so the original kind of iteration of the scheme is based on this idea that you have people who you want to retain as employees but who you aren't giving work to. And that's been a really important condition of the scheme, actually. In order to access the grant for any individual employee, that person is not permitted to work for their employer or for a linked company. And so that's been a really important condition, and that is actually changing in July. So the way it's worked up until now is that as an employer, you might decide you've got individuals for whom you don't have enough work or perhaps during the emergency period your business has been forced to close a lot of retailers for example have been in that position and so they're unable to provide work to any of their staff or some of their staff depending on the organization the scheme has allowed them to put those individuals on furlough where they're not working they're at home um, but they're being paid their wage and a proportion of their wage has been funded by the government and the way that it's been paid out is that the employer puts in a claim 
through a government kind of portal and it's paid via HMRC. So the grant goes to the employer and they then distribute it out to the employee. So that's been the sort of basis of the scheme to date. And you keep mentioning the state of July. What's changing in July? Yeah, so the scheme itself has kind of, it's been iterative. So it was originally in place for a particular period that was then extended by the Chancellor and then it's been extended until the end of October, which we're told is a sort of final end date. But in order to try and get the economy back up and running, which has obviously been, um, you know, the, the, the sort of approach of more recent changes, what's happening is rather than having this condition where the individual can't do anything for the employer in order to be eligible for the grant, um, what the government is saying is that we want to try to assist organisations to get people back into work at the right time and in the right way. So we'll permit you as a business to have an individual who is sometimes furloughed, sometimes at work, and you can claim for the time during, their, um, during which they're furloughed and for the time during which they're working for you, you pay them as normal. So what the idea here is that you could have a business that could rotate people on and off furlough to enable social distancing. So you could have teams of people, your A team, your B team, when A team's at work, B team's furloughed and vice versa. Or you could use it as an organization to bring back part of your workforce or to bring back all of your workforce on a part-time basis. So it's kind of trying to ease um, ease people and organizations back into some semblance of normality whilst funding part of the costs of doing that. And what does that mean needs to happen between now and when the system changes in July? So we know that there needs to be a written confirmation of this new arrangement. Quite interestingly, well, interestingly, for employment lawyers, the government guidance that's been issued on this, what's been called now the flexible furlough scheme, has come out kind of very recently, but hasn't necessarily answered all of the questions that we might have. And we also haven't got an update on what was what's called the Treasury direction, which is the effectively the sort of more important rules that apply to the scheme. And there's one in place for the old scheme, but not one in place yet for the new scheme. So all of that's to say we don't yet entirely have all of the rules, um, which is quite tricky because if you're an employer, like, you know, certain of our clients that we're helping, they want to do the right thing. They want to get this in place up and running, but there aren't necessarily um, answers to all the questions they might have. So what we do know is you need to be putting something in place between the employer and the individual employees. So, for example, writing to those individuals and saying, you know, as of 2nd of July, 5th of July, whatever your relevant date is for that, that person, we will be placing you onto this flexible furlough scheme. The difference with this is it means we're able to have you back to work. This is what we propose we'll be doing. For example, you know, you'll be working Monday through Wednesday, whatever the, the arrangement is, uh, and, and seeking their agreement to that and to any other changes that that might entail. So, you know, on the face of it, quite simple, but there's all sorts of, as you would imagine, nuances around how you will be able to calculate what what hours you can claim for the furlough scheme, what hours of worked hours, and all of that will need to be worked through, particularly as we get updated uh, guidance over the coming week. What are the major areas that you see being risky areas where there is currently no guidance? So I think, I think there's a few. I think that what we'll find in time is challenges that employers will face from individuals who were either not furloughed at all, who were furloughed and not brought back 
to work flexibly once the scheme allowed or vice versa who were brought back to work flexibly and perhaps struggled with that um, either from an individual perspective perhaps because they had a sort of underlying vulnerability a medical condition or also a childcare perspective because you know there are individuals who might be being required to come back to work but whose children are not able to go to school and they can't get childcare so there are all sorts of individual kind of circumstances that the guidance won't cover i don't imagine ever because it's an application of lots of existing employment law and hr policy and practice but they're exactly the kinds of issues that employers are having to grapple with as they make what on the face of it look just like quite straightforward shift rotoring arrangements but actually have lots of these other implications behind them and then the other aspect is more of a kind of calculation operational point really but is in terms of how you as an employer work through what are the working hours that you will need to pay yourselves as an organization and then what are the furloughed hours that you'll be able to claim under the grant um, and the ability to be really precise and clear and correct about those calculations will be so important for making sure that you're making a valid claim and you're not as a business inadvertently exposing yourself to the potential of you know hmrc coming after you for finding that you've perhaps claimed something you shouldn't have albeit potentially inadvertently that is the real difficult area i think that everyone's grappling with at the moment right and so there's been a lot of media reporting around what has happened with fraud risks and fraud complaints and just from a sort of criminal risk perspective there has been a bit of neglected uh, focus on what exactly we're talking about here so i think what we need to be clear about is we're talking about three different kinds of risk we're talking about a third party risk so someone who's trying to insert themselves into the process either between hmrc and employers or employers and employees employer risk, so the risk that the employer is defrauding either HMRC or employees, or an employee risk where the employee is defrauding HMRC through their employer. So there's been a rise in reporting of fraud, and HMRC have particularly talked about this in relation to third-party fraud. They've talked about is the phishing texts and emails. And there are examples of those all over HMRC's website. There's also social engineering, which has been happening, which is where someone pretends to be someone from HMRC, calls up and manages to trick either an unwitting employee or an external third party, such as a payroll provider, into disclosing all of these details that allow someone with unscrupulous aims to go in and change the bank details or possibly the paid amounts. And then the only one that the media seems to be focusing on is the employer fraud. So HMRC's fraud complaints have been bandied all over the newspapers and websites and things like that. As originally in the 12th of May, there were 795 fraud complaints. By the 29th of May, there was 1,868. And in mid-June, they're now reporting over 3,000. Now, of course, HMRC don't have the capacity at the moment to currently investigate all of those 3,000 complaints. It involves a lot of staff. They need access to documents they simply don't have, and they don't have the time to do it. So it seems like they're doing a bit of a pay it all now and then see if you can reclaim it or claw it back later to anyone who wasn't entitled, which is, I think, what you were talking about there, Kelly, with not exactly knowing where the boundaries are of what you can and can't do. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there are... So some of those grey boundaries or, or difficult to establish with certainty boundaries are, are relatively well known and understood. But this changeover between the scheme as it previously was and the new iteration of the scheme introduces additional um, difficult areas. And so, you know, things like 
establishing which of your employees are eligible under this new scheme because it's not just as simple as were they employed on X date, which was essentially the position under the original iteration of the scheme, although X date also changed. So that wasn't necessarily that simple, but but it was relatively you know definitive. Um, here, you're, you're, you've got to think about whether that individual was previously furloughed under the original scheme. And um, if they weren't, then they won't be eligible unless they're coming back from a period of family leave and that's why they weren't followed because they were on maternity leave, for example. So there's already that introduction of, um, you know, being able to understand which of the people on your list. And that might sound really obvious and, and easy. But if you're talking about an organization with a very large workforce, that could be quite an undertaking, that assessment. So there's quite a lot of work to be done in a relatively short space of time. And clearly that brings with it potential risks as well. Presumably also it brings with it the risk that someone in the workplace might have an arrangement, a side arrangement with someone to list them as previously being furloughed when in fact they weren't. Can you see that being a possibility? Yeah, I can, I can understand how that could happen. And, you know, certainly none of the clients that I have been speaking to would ever intend uh, that kind of situation and would always be doing what they can to, to avoid that. But the reality is, how can you prove to HMRC that you avoided that? And what procedures have you got in place and records of those procedures have you got in place if you're asked to justify that and sort of prove that later down the line? And I think it's it's almost that piece of the jigsaw, isn't it, that's the difficult one, is if something goes awry and goes wrong, how as an organization are you going to be able to retrofit the jigsaw and say, well, look, we did this, this and this? And we did everything we could or or actually, given the speed at which this is all moving, are there potential gaps in your ability to justify something if, if it goes wrong? And that's the worry, I think, for lots of businesses. So what is it exactly that HMRC are able to do in terms of looking at these claims now that they've received uh, fraud claims? Well, I think that's, that's actually going to be really interesting to see um, in terms of the next period of time, how it pans out. Because there's the kind of bucket of complaints that you flagged that are individuals understandably ringing HMRC saying, look, I'm concerned that my employer is making a claim they shouldn't be. The sort of, you know, what you might describe as the kind of deliberate fraud, which I know you'll be cringing with your um, criminal law hat on. That's not, an act, you know, that's not how it's described in the statute, but the kind of like someone is trying to pull the wool over. But I'm also really interested to see what happens with the other ones that may be less deliberate but may be seen to be a claim that shouldn't have been made and with this new scheme as I was saying there's kind of changes to it and one of the changes as well is the tapering off of what is permitted to be claimed under the scheme and the kind of adjustment between the pot of money so that less and less over the coming months is payable by the government and more and more is topped up by the employer and that I can see could be ripe for mistakes miscalculations, wrong dates, etc. And so you could see how there could be some some issues around that. And, and my understanding, you'll know, you'll know better than me, Alice, is that the, the length of time that HMRC can look back is likely to be fairly long as we go forward. Yeah, that seems to be the picture that they've got five years that they can go back and look at it. So they do have some time to play around with what information they can get and what exactly has happened. So as you were saying earlier, it's going to be incredibly important that all of these decisions around policy, around what exactly the grey area lines are going to be are clearly documented so that they can 
any business that is approached by HMRC can say, well, look, these are the reasons and this is what we decided to do, given the, the understanding available at the time. So there have also been some amendments to uh, Finance Bill 2020 proposed, which currently is proposing two things. The first is, as you were talking about, because of these changes in the way that it operates and what exactly is allowed and not allowed, there is a period of time which is going to be made available to businesses and employers to say, whoops, we made a mistake. We've not exactly got this right. And they'll be allowed to declare any claims that have been either improper or didn't quite follow what we now understand to be the rules. Those can be declared and repaid and nothing further will happen. That'll be it. Kind of a clean slate approach. But then there's going to be a kicker, which is if you didn't get around to declaring it, if you didn't make those payments, if you didn't say, whoops, I made a mistake, then there's going to be a penalties process. So at the moment, what is proposed is that not only would you have to repay 100% of whatever was paid out improperly or against what HMRC have decided the rules are, you'd also have to pay a 100% penalty for failing to put your hand up. So 200% of whatever was paid to you. And that's quite a significant penalty, particularly if we're not in a situation where it was deliberate. If this is just one of those, as you were talking about, gray areas where you've made a judgment call, which now no longer aligns with what the understanding is. Yeah. And I, it seems to me that there's a, a window of opportunity for businesses in the coming kind of weeks, perhaps, perhaps no longer than coming weeks, to do a check to get an independent assessment, ideally, of those areas, those decisions, and establish whether there is a concern because of this, effectively, this kind of amnesty period um, moratorium in a way, to set, if there's been a problem, to find it, to spot it, and to own up about it. But that seems to be a fairly short and potentially rapidly closing window of opportunity from what the current consultation would suggest anyway. Yeah, it's currently proposed to be around about 30 days. Do you think that's going to be long enough for businesses to get a true handle on whether or not they have overstepped the mark with their claim? Yeah, it's potentially very tight, isn't it? Um, certainly for organisations that have complex employment arrangements. You know, it's one thing if you're a business that has a relatively small number of people who are employed in a similar way on similar contracts with a base salary and fixed hours. And it's pretty, pretty easy to work out who's been furloughed. Perhaps the whole thing's been shut down completely. And there's, you know, there's everything on the scale from there up into organizations with various different entities within a group with different employing structures, with different working arrangements and locations with different people who've been furloughed for perhaps for certain periods and brought back for other periods, all of those complexities obviously bring with it, not just the potential for, for risk to creep in, but also the logistical difficulties of sense checking that. The, the other bit as well for me that I don't think has, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think has yet been completely confirmed is when the 30 days begins to run, because that's going to be quite important, isn't it? If it's 30 days from when you've made a claim, well, what about all the claims that were made months ago? Is it, are they just, is it too late? Or is it sort of 30 days from when the scheme is closed? Or, you know, what, what, 30 days from when HMRC contact you? Like, what's the situation? That's going to be quite important to establishing like, how, how much of an analysis you can do as an organization to check that, you know, you've got everything as right as you hoped you did. Yeah, that's right. And because we don't actually know at the moment how that is going to be uh, defined, the legislation is in consultation. It's coming back to uh, Parliament on the 25th of June. 
And from there, there's going to be a whole host of factors that will be taken into account and what exactly they're going to do with it. It's just impossible to tell at the moment. Yeah, which is difficult, isn't it? I think we'll look back as lawyers on this period. We'll look, we'll all look back as individuals on this period of time and reflect on the weirdness of lots of things. But I think as lawyers, you know, we, we don't see this type of situation where over a period of time, vast swathes of legislation and guidance and really fairly complex interrelating and, you know, high octane in the world of employment and tax or anyway, <laughs> piece, pieces of legislation and rules. I just just come in out of left field and are amended over and over again, and and obviously you know to a degree that's that's unavoidable because we're operating in a crisis state. But the legislation and the rules and the guidance that everybody in these organisations have to make decisions on has not been through the same rigour as you would expect uh, in normal times. Consultation issues being spotted, issues being addressed, dealt with, understood by you know industry bodies and things. It doesn't have that. And in fact, that is the difficult bit is that these issues will be flushed out to a degree when it's too late for some organizations to correct them. And that's yeah. really difficult to get your head around. Exactly. And there's always that horrible threat hanging over everyone in any type of situation where you're talking about a regulator, which is what's going to happen if they decide it was deliberate, if it was a criminal charge. So there are, of course, criminal sanctions here, which is if anyone was doing it dishonestly. So those fraud risks that we were talking about, if that has happened, there are criminal penalties which could follow. And depending on what numbers we're talking about here, they could be significant, particularly because the courts are going to look to who did this deliberately. And they're going to look to punish and punish severely. So we're talking about a situation where the entire society has kind of mobilized behind this idea of the communal good. And anyone who's going to be stepping outside that is really going to be putting their head above the parapet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that dovetails with the economic reality that that you touched on, Alice, that you know we're paying out as a society to try and keep things as much on track as, as we can. And then we'll move into this different period, won't we, where if you're HMRC, you will be looking for the gaps and the ways in which to claw back that vast, vast, vast amount of money that has been paid out. And, and the obvious place to start is the dishonest claims. But then perhaps as we get further down the track, the ones that are more nuanced will merit equal focus because if they're outside the rules, they're outside of the rules. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So what can businesses do? What are we looking at here? How can you safeguard yourself? I think there's something to be said for looking to take stock at this point. So a lot of these decisions around furlough were made at speed necessarily because people were trying to keep the business on the road and also keep individuals in jobs, which remember was the thrust of the scheme, you know, and there was a lot of discussion about, you know, taking people back onto the books who'd been made redundant in order to access the furlough scheme. And that was a real push behind the scheme, actually, I think in hopes that those people would potentially have a job to stay in at the other end, whereas if they were made redundant at the start, that opportunity may be taken away. So the thrust of it was very much about let's just keep as much status quo as we can. So quick decisions were made, understandably. We've now got in the world of coronavirus and business, perhaps a relative state of calm um, <laughs> in the sense that furloughs up and running. If you're accessing the scheme, you have already accessed it. Otherwise, you're, you know, you know, too late. So there's a, there's a level of understanding about some of the operational processes, including some of the legal pieces around how you, you know, validly implement it with individuals and all, and all of that good stuff. Although there is work to be done 
around making sure that your processes are fit um, for purpose under the new iteration of the scheme. I think there's, there's a little bit potentially of breathing space that's important to take now to see whether you think it would make sense as an organization to get a review of what you've done. And that may be, you know, for some organizations, that may be the first time that they've looked externally for somebody to look at it. You know, many organizations will have dealt with this themselves internally via payroll and their finance teams. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, for other organizations, they may have had some advice, so they may they may take a view that that's fine, or they may want to take this opportunity to test, you know, if there's any concerns that they have, whether they think they've got the robust processes in place to ensure that, you know, the delegation structures haven't left them with a risk inbuilt. I don't know whether you agree, but I feel like that's, this is an opportunity that will disappear quite quickly, that could be quite important for any organization that has a concern. Absolutely, absolutely. So... Why would you go to a law firm to conduct this kind of review? What's what's the point? It's a good question because you know we're not we're not normally known for carrying our calculators around with us necessarily, but actually in this situation it's really important to take into account what are the advantages you get from going externally and going to lawyers if you're going externally. And the one advantage that you get from instructing lawyers is the potential for taking advice that is covered by legal privilege. And that is really important in the context of any sort of investigation that you decide actively whether or not you want that to be covered by legal privilege, such that you have a bit more control over what you can then do with the information and a bit more time to deal with it. And that's something I think, Alice, in your practice that you come across often, isn't it? This is absolutely crucial. So the amount of organizations that have either not consulted a lawyer at all and any advice they've got is immediately discoverable by any regulator coming along, particularly HMRC. The other point is that there's a lot of ways that you can go out to a lawyer, get good privileged advice and then lose that privilege, either by waiving it, sending it to a third party, copying an accountant in, uh, any of these the steps that you take to make sure that the advice is given to anyone that's not the lawyer and your business do mean that all of that protection that you had in place is now gone. So it is incredibly important that both you think about what advice you're getting and how you might lose that protection that you've carefully crafted. So is there any last advice that you've got for businesses? Yeah, I'd love to say something super sexy and whizzy, but actually in reality, I think a big part of this is almost future gazing and saying, if I am asked or if we as a business are asked in four or five years time to explain the decisions that we made, the process that we followed, which we're confident is great. We're confident we've made all the right decisions. We're confident we've taken advice. How will we demonstrate what we've done? And particularly, how will we demonstrate it if me, the individual in finance or payroll or HR isn't here anymore? How as a business will we be able to sort of show our workings if HMRC come knocking to test the sort of answer that we input into the system. And um, unsexy as this may be, this is down to records and clear, consistent, complete records that show your workings as an organization. There's really no way of getting away from that. Put another way, if you don't keep them, there's a potential risk that you're building in, not because you've done something wrong, but because you can't prove you did something right. And that's such a shame. Yeah, and also I'm sure that you, you'd also reiterate, make sure you know what your data retention policies are. There's nothing worse than having all of these beautiful, beautiful records and then suddenly discovering when you need them, you've actually destroyed them. 
Yes, you've automatically deleted them because you didn't switch that thing off on your IT system. Yeah, yeah, that would be, that's a gut-wrenching moment, isn't it? <laughs> Hello, this is Alice breaking in from the future. One of the challenges of operating in an ever-changing landscape is that, well, it's ever-changing. Since recording this episode on a very hot day in June, the finance bill has been amended, changing the time businesses have to notify HMRC of any furlough payment they shouldn't have received from 30 days to a more reasonable 90 days, and explaining that this time period starts to run from the earlier of the date of royal assent, estimated to be in late July, or the date at which the tax becomes payable. Kelly, thank you so much for taking us through furlough and all of its nuances, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. As ever, a full transcript of our episode, together with our references, can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. And if you have any questions for me or for Kelly or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. If you did like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks.